is he running, Dad? Because we have to chase him. Okay, we're going in. Go, go. Move. He didn't do anything wrong. Because it's the hero Gotham deserves. But not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him. Because he can take it. Because he's not our hero. He's a silent guardian. A watchful protector. That's a hell of a name.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sports Talk. Today is February the 26th, 2024. I'm your host, Absolute1776, joined by the one and only friend and fellow host, J.B. White. How you doing today, my friend? Man, it's a beautiful day in creation. Uh, spring is yes. definitely in Florida, and it's 70-something degrees, and feels like being outside, man. <laughs> Preach it. Preach it. It, it. it feels uh, very much spring up here to, uh, up here this way as well, man. It uh, feels nice. Like I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm not freezing my balls off every morning when I wake up. And it's it's that's the good stuff, man. That's what life's made of. I uh, hope you folks had a wonderful, wonderful weekend. I hope you guys are having a wonderful start to your week. Uh, we, of course, are here, uh, you know, the Friday we had a pre-recorded episode and it was it was pretty fire. If I got to say so myself, we kind of kind of ate our Wheaties uh, before before we recorded that episode, man. Um, today is going to be a little bit more normal. We're going to catch up on some NBA, NHL stuff, um, including having a look toward the end of the episode. Uh, last week was the, uh, I believe, the 44th, yeah, the 44th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. So we're going to take a look at that later on in the show. And uh, I said a few weeks ago we were going to take a little bit uh, a little bit more of an in-depth look at Brandon Miller. Everybody's paid attention to Wembenyama basically all season. It's been him as far as the rookie show goes, and that's fine. Well-deserved. He's a fantastic player. He's having a great rookie campaign. But uh, Brandon Miller has been ignored, and a lot of it is because, you know, Charlotte is has been straight trash basically all season until, you know, the last – what, since the trade deadline, basically, we see what happens when you get rid of dead weight and actually bring <laughs> some ball players onto your team that can play ball. It kind of has a difference. Um, but no, Brandon Miller has been a straight stud this season, man. So I figure we're going to take a little bit of a look at him and uh, some other stuff around the NHL and whatnot. So first and foremost, friends, I want to thank you guys so very, very much for joining myself and JB. We could not uh, we could not be more appreciative of your love and support. I want to remind you guys to please go down there and smash that like button for us. I want to thank you guys as well for your support of our advertising partners, because without them, there is no Badlands. So we're going to pause and hear a couple words from our advertising partners. When we come back, we're going to jump into some NBA stuff. So hang with us, friends. We will be right back. Life is unpredictable, friends. If we've learned anything these last four years, it's that. And while we can't possibly predict everything that might be thrown at us, we can prepare for it. Introducing two new emergency kits from the wellness company. The first aid emergency kit for everything from sports activities to camping trips. Compact and convenient, this kit contains critical prescription medications and supplies that everyone should have on hand. The travel emergency kit is specially designed for life on the go. Compact, lightweight, and loaded with essentials for any adventure. Whether it's a road trip, a hike, or just the unpredictability of daily life, you'll be ready. Next level readiness is at your fingertips with emergency kits from the wellness company. Stay one step ahead to have peace of mind for the unpredictable. Visit badlandsmedia.tv slash TWC and use the promo code BADLANDS for an exclusive 10% discount. That's badlandsmedia.tv slash TWC, promo code BADLANDS. Family meeting time, friends. When the store shelves are empty in the coming months, how are you going to provide protein for your family? Protein is a critical building block for survival and knowing that you have sous vide, freeze dried, all American beef from ranches in Texas that have never, ever, ever given their cows an mRNA jab on your pantry shelf will give you tremendous peace of mind. Meet No Bugs Beef, a veteran owned distributor of premium freeze dried beef that's stored in Mylar bags with oxygen absorbers for maximum shelf life. No Bugs Beef Cubes will stay shelf stable for more than 10 years without refrigeration and with maximum nutrition and flavor. Just soak it in water for 15 minutes, and it's ready to eat. 
These aren't your typical survival meats either. They're premium cuts of ribeye, New York strip, tenderloins, sirloin, and chuck. Don't let your family get caught with that premium protein on your shelves. Go to badlandsmedia.tv slash nobugs and use the promo code BADLANDS for an additional 10% off your order. That's badlandsmedia.tv slash nobugs, promo code BADLANDS. Welcome back, my friends, and we're going to start things off today by having a look-see at the NBA standings. I don't know uh, how much you've noticed or not, <laughs> JB, but the Celtics just done been like, see ya, we got shit to do. You guys take care, but we we are the best team in the East. And wasn't it just a few weeks ago, like, the Bucks and the Cavaliers were like a game and a half behind these fools? <laughs> now it's Boston's like, nah, it's time to play a little serious now. So Boston... Sitting atop the East right now at 45 and 12. The Cleveland Cavaliers are seven and a half games behind them at 37 and 19, followed up by the Milwaukee Bucks at 37 and 21. They sit eight and a half games back. In that fourth spot, 34 and 23 are the New York Knicks. They are 11 games back. 12 games back are the Philadelphia 76ers, 33 and 24. They've managed to stay somewhat afloat. Sands Embiid, but that last 10 shows that they're uh, they're trending in the wrong direction, trending very much a direction that you and I kind of thought they were going to head when when we saw about the Embiid injury. The Indiana Pacers sit at 33 and 25, 12 and a half games back of that number 1 seed. Going down through the 7 through 10 spots, you got Miami at 31 and 25, followed by Orlando at 32 and 26. Chicago at 27 and 30 and the Atlanta Hawks round off the playoff picture in the East at 25 and 32. Moving on to the West, the Minnesota Timberwolves and Oklahoma City Thunder sit atop the West tied at 40 and 17. A game and a half back of them and recently surging are the Denver Nuggets at 39 and 19 and sitting right behind them at two and a half games back. The LA Clippers at 37 and 19. Then you've got the Sacramento Kings at 33 and 23. The Phoenix Suns at 34 and 24. The New Orleans Pelicans at 34 and 24. The Dallas Mavericks at 33 and 24. The Los Angeles Lakers at 31 and 28. And then the Golden State Warriors round out the playoff picture in the West at 29 and 27. JB. What are some of your thoughts upon uh, glancing at these standings, man? Is there anything surprising you or anything that's kind of like, yeah, that's that's right about on track or looking like we thought it would? Yeah, it's almost like, hey, these teams are kind of locked in. This is who they are, you know. So, I mean, other than Boston just saying, hey, we're going to do the distancing thing. But, uh, yeah, I think the the league is settling in. Yeah, it's like Boston just got kind of like – tired of everybody else being around them and we're like yeah no we're just gonna go ahead and do boston things as they sit at 45 and 12 like we said they they've been on an absolute rip i think they've won eight or nine nine in a row at this point like that one in that last 10 was like the first game in this 10 game stretch that they lost and they won everything since man it's been absolutely positively absurd um and i want to take a look as well if we roll down the charlotte hornets sitting at 15 and 42 now five and five in their last five and i think we've won um, we had won four in a row, then lost one, then won the next one. So we're, um, it, we haven't looked terrible since the trade deadline. It's, it's almost like when you get rid of a lot of nonsense, dead weight on your roster and bring in dudes that actually want to be there and ha- have talent. Well, 
Testing. Testing. Yeah, I hear you. There we go. Internet fucking gremlins again, because why not? Yeah. Um, anyway, like I was saying, uh, the Hornets have been playing a lot better basketball lately. Um, and a lot of it, you know, we've, we've been without LaMelo Ball for a long stretch, too, as he, he's been dealing with injuries again. And there was um, a couple articles written up about that, like people reaching out to him to try to help him. I think Steph Curry was one person that that reached out to him and said, we you need to work on your um, your kinetics, like to, to help your injuries. And um, somebody even suggested to him, my dude, you need to learn how to fall. Because like, you know, that's, <clears throat> that was actually an interesting uh, conversation. I caught wind of a few days ago. Um, I don't think it was ESPN. I think it may have been Fox sports, but they were actually talking about it. Like, you know, NBA players, some of them actually learn how to fall. And Lamelo has not done that. And it's led to, some recurrence of injuries and it's like, he doesn't um, love Lamelo Lamelo as a player, but he doesn't seem to be taking the steps to um, either, either kind of preventative steps for his ankles or injury, or he, he doesn't seem to be doing the things that uh, benefit him. So, you know, in the first, the first few seasons there, Steph Curry had a lot of issues rolling his ankles and spraining his ankles. Steph Curry took a step back and was like, what can I do to, um, what can I do to kind of preempt this? And he strengthened his ankles and he went through strength and conditioning programs and he did different things um, to help his ankles be a little more sturdy. He even adjusted his play style a little bit and he learned how to fall and learned how to land correctly on his feet when going up for jumps. Lamelo's not done this. And now it's starting to get into a point where it's like, he's clearly superstar level, but it doesn't matter how good you can play the game. If your ass can't be on the court to play the game and he's missed a significant chunk of this season. And so you just you hope as a Hornets fan he can get it together and figure these injuries out because if he can, you start thinking that that a, a core of of him, Miles Bridges, and 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 Brandon Miller moving forward is not bad to build around and build off of. So you got to have Lamelo there, but um, not a Lamelo discussion, man. I, I wanted to talk about Brandon Miller a little bit, and I said um, a few weeks back when we did the Wemby piece, I was like, let's we need to take a look at Brandon Miller too because he's he's legit got so he's like got it. And I was saying that last you know last time we talked about, it, I was like, dude, he's he's good. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a Hornets fan. Um, so first thing, let's let's take a look at some Brandon Miller half season highlights and kind of kind of see what he's looked like to this point in this season, friends. Bringing up those kind of high praise. Eric Spolstra came here 29 years ago as the each video coordinator. Two guys going for the same minutes, both of them on two-way deals. They really got after it competitive. Transition. Rogier finding Miller in the corner. Now let's see if the Wizards can get back on defense. Brandon Miller! <laughs> That was a yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Oh, oh, yeah. I like to see some defense. 
an above average defender for a rookie. You know, Paul, he kind of has that basketball player glide to him. He does. He, that's one of the his athleticism is off the effing charts, dude. Oh. <laughs> He's got a hella sweet stroke, too. And and you're right. I mean, he's played 51 games, and, you know, Lamelo 22. I'm like, okay, that's not going to set it. You got to be on the court, man. And look, when Melo's on the court, he's one of the best point guards in the league. But you got to be on the court. (laughs) I'm not trying to bag on Melo, but come on, man. You've got to identify things you can do in your career to be on the court and play the game, even if it means adjusting your game a little bit and adjusting certain things. Even if it means you got to put in an intensive prep in the offseason because your body has told you something. Absolutely. Look, I brought up Steph Curry. He's the priming. I mean, had ankle issues too, and Curry's managed to get his shit. Oh my goodness, that was a grown man dunk. Wish City. He's he's something. Now, a couple weeks back, the Lakers were in town here in Charlotte, and um, Miller it was, is, to my mind, his best game as as a professional yet. And of course, he did it against LeBron and company, which I think deserves a little extra merit itself to be able to set aside the nerves and, and, and play against uh, LeBron's one of Miller's idols. So for um, for Miller to have this kind of game against the Lakers kind of kind of showed us Hornets. I, I know Hornets fans were hella excited after this game. Like, oh, OK, we're, we're seeing what he can be now. Um, let's take a look at what he get, did against the Lakers a couple weeks back. Brandon Miller coming up 35 piece. Until he waited, we're going to get a chance to score the ball against these Lakers. It's just how well they want to play tonight. Brandon Miller. Oh, my goodness. Mm. The world's starting to find out. He can play. Yeah. Right back the the crossover and the step back. That was. Brandon Miller. That's what I'm talking about. Matches. He sets his feet ridiculously quick. Like, that's, that's what the great shooters are able to do. Flowing yeah. stroke. He just flows with it. It's a very fluid and natural looking stroke, too. Hmm. He's a baller, folks. <clears throat> a 
You think this kid said, look here, King James. <laughs> look here. <laughs> I'm excited about this boy, man. I'm not even going to lie. He's like starting to show signs of being that dude that does a little bit of all of it. He's not just offensive. But he can do that too, though. <laughs> Get you so, some. <laughs> so I think he ended up with 33 points that game, 10 assists, and seven or eight rebounds. It was his best game of the season all around, I think. Um, and Hornets fans are excited about this kid, man. It's like over the last few weeks, especially since the trade deadline, you you can't get a ticket to a Hornets game. This team only has 15 wins. You can't get a ticket because, look, basketball fans in North Carolina aren't stupid. We're, we're huge basketball fans, right? It's like kind of look, it's kind of a southeast thing too. Like basketball, kind of ingrained in you, right? So we can tell when we're working with a bag of shit or when we're working with something that's got some potential around these parts, and people are starting to see something, especially with Brandon Miller, and they're starting to see that we do indeed have a decent foundation built up. Um, we made a lot of really good moves at the trade deadline. It's one of the best trade deadlines the Hornets have had in years, and you come to find out that the new owners had a huge hand in that, and it's kind of like. Oh, okay. So these guys actually know a little bit of basketball because they were behind a lot of those moves we made to set the team up for the future. And I think we're going to have something like $40 million in cap space this off season too. So we're going to have a little room to do some things. we got a nice foundation. We're probably going to be bringing in a new head coach. So we'll see what happens. There's reasons for excitement, but so I, I played those two to go into this next one, which is, which is clearly a little bit longer, but it's worth it. It's a really good analysis of Brandon Miller's play that I found on YouTube. Um, and the guy breaks it down wonderfully, everything you're seeing from Baron and Miller and how, how he's improved throughout his rookie season. And one thing I wanted to point out before we start this video as well, JB, is you can tell from uh, the first highlight package we watched that went progressively through the season to the most recent one against uh, L.A., you can even tell that in that time frame, Brandon Miller's put on a little bit of size and got a little bit more definition to him. Like he's, You could tell this kid's putting in the work like in all facets, and it's just... I can't wait to see what this kid's going to become. Let's have a quick look at this uh, this analysis video on Brandon Miller. Rookies in the NBA are so fascinating because for a lot of guys, it's almost like a tale of two seasons. You can watch them grow over the course of a few weeks as the trial and error stage comes to a close. And right about now is when players start to emerge. Of those, Brandon Miller is really standing out. Over his last nine games, he's averaging 21.5 points on nearly 50-40-90 splits, and the scoring tools that have been on display are nothing short of impressive. The first thing you've got to talk about with Miller is his outside shooting, specifically off the catch. On the season, he's shooting over 38%, which is pretty good, but doesn't even quite do him justice when accounting for the level of difficulty. This one's a solid 30-footer in transition, and with a defender jumping out to close that space, he remains completely unfazed. He's very quick getting the ball up and out of his hands, meaning that he can capitalize on really tight windows of opportunity. And he's comfortable hitting while moving in any direction, so he can get these looks off at volume in a variety of ways. This one starts with the Hornets setting up Spain pick and roll, 
but the Spurs put two on the ball, so there's nobody for Miller to screen, and he just flashes out to the perimeter, finding open space on the left wing for a quality three. He's really good at relocating or repositioning himself to seek out openings like that. After kicking the ball out, he immediately follows his pass to that left wing with nobody to close out as he turns and fires. This is really tough to deal with because whenever they set up action for him, his shooting is far from the only thing defenses have to worry about. He gets fronted on this. I remember when he was coming out of college, they questioned his basketball intelligence. Here's another that starts with some sharp off-ball movement, juking Caruso out of his shoes before running off a flare screen, and that forces the Bulls to give him a favorable switch. From there, he can attack on a drive and spin down the lane for a short jumper. One of Miller's best attributes is his ability to quickly attack off the catch. He's great at reading closeouts and beating them off the dribble, this time driving right down the middle for a tough finish. Here's another one. He relocates to the corner, catches and jabs right before attacking baseline, with enough room to clear for takeoff and throw down this vicious dunk. Now feels like a pretty good time to talk about some of his physical tools. At 6'7", he's got an extremely lengthy frame, which really helps him as a finisher around the rim. He's able to avoid the paint protection by fully extending his left and scoops it off glass for two. It also really beautiful. helps him as a slasher. In space, he can cover lots of ground with very basic moves, like a hezzy cross, and all he needs is just one step by his defender's hip to stride into another one of those finger rolls. A lot of these attacks are very KD-esque. The handle's a little loose, but the length allows him to really exaggerate his change of direction, putting Brooks on the court with a sharp crossover <laughs> and sidestepping into a jumper. Miller's not the most explosive athlete in the world, but pairs that length with some pretty nice burst, and he uses hesitations to set up his defender before taking that first step, where again, all he needs he is does a, a lot slight of things advantage you can't to teach. stride into a layup. That burst is especially notable seems when he's operating have from a sense. standstill. Some guys need momentum to start their attacks, but with a simple jab right and drive left, he blows right by his man and finishes over the top of Gobert. Here's another example. A screen's coming to his right, so he throws a rocker step into a drive left, nice. but this time he's met by a big and drop coverage and instead gets to the elbow for a jumper. Having a wide array of scoring counters he can go to when met with different types of defense really takes his on-ball game to another level. This one starts with the Hezian drive, but he gets cut off, only to immediately counterspin right into a fadeaway mid-range J. That mid-range game is his bread and butter. Here's one of those off-the-catch situations where he beats a closeout, only for the paint to be completely packed. The ability to rise up from about 15 feet out is huge. His size yep. and length gives him access over the top of defenses, and because Charlotte's got maybe the worst spacing in the league right now, that's a big deal. I don't think he's yet figured out how to consistently create separation, but he's had some good reps, like this one where he goes into Caruso's chest to bump him back before using an escape dribble to get a good look from the elbow. That free well, he throw puts about 10, 15 more pounds on spot. him. If he has room to work with coming off of screens, he's looking to get there for pull-up jumpers. And because he's most comfortable in those situations, he's already really good at attacking drop coverage. 
With that said, I think he tends to settle for these looks a little bit too much. His defender gets hit hard by a screen, leaving him with a ton of space to attack Vooch, who isn't very mobile. But he doesn't even think to attack, instead going to a 20-foot jumper. I mentioned his comfort against drop coverage. Well, he isn't very comfortable when bigs meet him early. Those are the times where he's more inclined to fall back on tougher shots, instead of hunting for a better opportunity. Then you'll have plays where it looks like he's got the right idea, but hasn't yet to be fair, out that particular to big was Jason Tatum. He snakes this pick and roll to keep the defender on his back, and Richards sets a perfect back screen to get him a lane. But instead of seeking that out, he picks up his dribble way too early, and all of a sudden, it's a low percentage shot. It's not uncommon for young players to struggle with these sorts of things early on. Just look at the development of Anthony Edwards. At first, it looked like he might just be a one-speed player who needed to be able to turn the corner. But now he's pausing, reading the defense, changing his attack angle, and obviously Miller's not the athlete that Ant is, but I do think he's already showcasing some of that patience. A screen comes right, but DiVincenzo forces him left, where a big's waiting to meet him early. And with a little hezzy into a cross, he snakes the screen to get to his hot zone. Here's another one from that same game, where DiVincenzo forces him into the big, but instead of playing into what the defense wants, he spins back out, uses the screen, and keeps his dribble line as he hunts for space That's to beautiful. set up a jumper. Another thing you'll see him do in these spots is put defenders in jail. He plays it slow and waits for Giddy to get close before shielding him off with his body. And notice the off-arm serving as a roadblock, another tactic that elite scorers use. From there, he can sidestep into an opening where Dort fouls him, yet he's still able to score through it for a chance at three. This one starts that away was, from the ball. That was right grown man catch, ass shit. That whole play. Into his attack and pauses as soon as he realizes Anderson's caught on his back. Then he's going to start his drive, and with Gobert dropping back, he's able to get to a floater. The scoring tools are just so obvious. He's already a high-level outside shooter with the versatility and degree of difficulty to stress defenses and pairs that with some decent slashing, a strong in-between scoring game, and even some flashes of strong navigation in the pick and roll. Remember, he's only 41 games into his NBA career, so we're still talking about lots of room for growth. A really important trait that you've got to look at in these young scorers to gauge their potential, though, is how they leverage that threat into opportunities for others. Because Miller's often utilized as an off-ball weapon, he's not asked to carry the same workload as a playmaker as some other guys, but I think in limited volume, there are some things to be excited about. This one starts with him attacking a closeout, and he stares down Martin on the wing to move Hart out of the paint before throwing a bullet to Washington mm. in the dunker All spot, right. who's able to finish. He'll make some nice finds that suggest a solid ceiling as a creator. First, it's his shooting threat, forcing an extra defender to slide over from the wing, and he keeps his head up to find a cutter without hesitation. You've also got some versatility in how he releases these passes. A long rebound ends up in his hands, which he uses to start on a drive, and with nobody watching the dunker, he throws a left-handed lob right on the money. Now don't get me wrong, you've still got the typical young errors, trying some things out, what works, what doesn't, but the big thing is that he's a willing passer, 
who can make different reads, which bodes well. In totality, we're talking about someone who can develop into a really strong 3-level scorer, as he fills out his frame and figures out how to use his body, as well as getting more comfortable handling the ball through traffic, he's going to cause a lot of problems for opposing defenses. Yeah. So JB, a um, little more exposure to Miller there, man. What's your take on him as a player and what the Hornets potentially have with him? He looked like a potential elite franchise player who's going to be a difference maker. You know, you're talking about LaMelo and I mean, you need a duo. You need at least a duo. And that is an incredibly enticing possibility right there because he's not a one-track pony. He, I especially love that he's very comfortable with the mid-range game. A lot of these players now, they just don't get it and they can't do it. Uh, it really opens up a lot when you can shoot from the outside <clears throat> and be very comfortable in the mid-range game. Wow, that's good. What I really liked was the adjustment to the big man meeting him. That that in the early in the early part of that video there, he was showing that anytime Brandon had started to drive and a big met him up near the key or up near the the three point line, he kind of hesitated and would would fall back into his shell. Toward the end part of that video, when he was getting met by a big, he was going right at him or figuring ways around it, ways through it with with passes or or, or attacking. Um, his growth through his rookie season so far has been tremendous. I think now he's up to averaging close to 20 points a game over the last month or so. His his splits have been ridiculous. His shooting percentage has been fantastic. He's a great free throw shooter as well. The, the, he didn't touch upon that. But you're so right, man, because when we drafted this kid, it was kind of – there were a lot of people that wanted us to take Scoot Henderson over him, and there was a lot of talk going on about it. And a lot of people were like, well, Brandon Miller is kind of a one-trick pony. He's a really good outside shooter, but we didn't see a whole lot from him beyond that in college. Um, and he's just been super impressive. And so you think from from our standpoint, if you can keep LaMelo ha uh, healthy and keep him on the court and you bring Miles Bridges back, you've got three really good young players as a core right there. That's something the Hornets haven't had in – Dude, I don't even know that the Hornets have had it since we got them back. Like, since they were the Bobcats and changed their name back to the Hornets, I don't know that we've had such a promising trio of a core to build around. Um, and speaking of Miles Bridges, you remember uh, a few months back, you and I brought up the the new charges that were against him, and um, we were kind of pointing out some inconsistencies in this latest story, and it turns out that the judge threw all three of those charges out, the most recent mm -hmm. charges against Miles Bridges. The inference seems to be that this chick was barking up a tree and, and kind of needs to go on about her way and stop finding reasons to file paperwork against Miles Bridges was what the inference was from the judge. It was basically like, this is ridiculous. There's nothing here for a case. Stop it. Um, so Miles Bridges is, is free and clear of all those and work on building his rep back. I'm a, I'm a big fan of second chances, man. We're all humans. We all fuck up and make mistakes. He fucked up and made a mistake and he, had, he owned his mistake. He admitted his mistake. And he, at, to this point has apparently done everything legally required of him to show that he's taking the proper steps to make change. And another thing I really, really liked, man, was he could have got the hell off the ship. There were no less than seven or eight teams that were vying for his services at the trade deadline. He's a miles bridges is a massively skilled player. You don't often find guys of his size that can shoot as well as he can, um, but also go inside. He's a fantastic, well-rounded player. Um, he's one of my favorite Hornets, despite this legal stuff. And so 
there were a lot of fans who kind of like, you know, doing the leftist virtue signaling thing. Ew, Miles is a bad dude. We don't need him on this team. I'm over here like, no, we need Miles Bridges on this team. You don't have a basketball player that talented and just be like, eh, we don't need him on the team. Um, but the thing is, like, if we can move forward with him and he 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 wants to be here is my point. Like he could have jumped ship at the trade deadline, but he had a no movement clause and he would not. Okay. Any trade didn't matter. Didn't matter if the trade would have been to the Celtics. Didn't matter who it was. Miles was vetoing it because he wanted to stay here. Part of that's because of his relationship with LaMelo. And part of that is because he, he honestly feels like he's got a job here to finish. And I appreciate that about him. And I think Charlotte fans are really starting to endear themselves to him because of that. Like, Here's a dude was on the worst team in the NBA at the time, had a chance to get loose and said, no, you're not trading me. I'm going to stay here. So we'll see what happens with him because he's going to be in a, a free agent in the offseason. But to me, he's a guy you got to keep around at this point. His chemistry with LaMelo, his budding chemistry with, with Miller is something to watch. And I think the Hornets have – they've finally got something good. Now, you know, the – the uh, <laughs> the fear creeps in as a Hornets fan. Like, don't worry, I'm sure we'll do something to fuck this all up soon. Um, but you know what? No disrespect to my favorite basketball player of all time, but with Jordan out of the picture as the owner, that hope is actually persisting because you saw what the Hornets did at the trade deadline, and then the word comes down that it was mostly the owners doing all that, and you're like, oh shit! So these dudes don't just have money that wanted to buy a basket; they know what they're doing. They know basketball, so it's kind of like a little bit, a little bit of excitement here right now for the Hornets, man. And well, look, we shit on different fan bases all the time for, for, you know, Cleveland has been shit on a lot. And, um, dude, Charlotte basketball fans have, have got to take, take a little bit of a nod for putting up with a lot of bullshit with our basketball team and not really having a lot to enjoy. So hopefully that worm is turning a little bit, man. So, um, <clears throat> unless you have anything else you wanted to add on about mellow bridges, the Hornets or, or Brandon Miller, man, we can, uh, we can move on to the next topic, my friend. Yeah, we're good. Cool. Well, the next one, uh, we're talking about, you know, great rookies there. We're going to talk about a guy that isn't a rookie and is one of the best players in the NBA period. Um, and he's on a really ridiculous rip right now. And it's almost like, you know, Embiid, Embiid damn near had that MVP sewn up until he got hurt. Um, and Jokic is like, hey, hey, please don't insert any black people pettiness into the voting this season because I'd really like to win my third MVP in four seasons. Um, so here we go. All, all the numbers you need to know from Nikola Jokic's historic three-game stretch to bolster MVP case. Over this three-game stretch, Jokic is averaging 27.3 points, 16.7 rebounds, and 15 assists per game. <clears throat> Nikola Jokic was added again on Sunday, leaving the Denver leading the Denver Nuggets to a 119-103 victory over the Golden State Warriors with 32 points, 16 boards, and 16 assists. His stunning performance was the latest in a historic three-game stretch that has bolstered his case for a third MVP award. Jokic's hot streak has coincided with a three-game winning streak for the defending champions, who are now 39-19 on the season and one-and-a-half games behind the Timberwolves and Thunder in the crowded race for the number one seed in the West. The only thing that doesn't ha hasn't gone right for Jokic lately is that his, quote, bad teammates, unquote, didn't get him any gifts for his birthday. With his unique brilliance once again on full display, here are all the numbers you need to know from his three-game stretch. 27.3, 16.7, and 15. Those are Jokic's averages over the last three games. 27.3 points, 16.7 boards, and 15 assists. Get off my screen, stupid ad. He's also shooting 68.6% .6 from the field to continue another incredibly efficient campaign. His consistency wow. has been perhaps the most impressive aspect of this run. Here's a look at his lines from each game. February 22nd versus the Wizards, 21 points on 10 of 10 field goals, 19 boards, and 15 assists. 
the next night against the Trailblazers. 29 points on 12 of 17 from the field, 15 boards, 14 assists. And two days later, February 25th against the Warriors, 32 points and 13 of 24 from the field, 16 boards and 16 assists. 80-50-45. If you go by totals, Jokic has put up 82 points, 50 rebounds, and 45 assists in these three games. He is the second player in NBA history to have at least 80 points, 50 boards, and 45 assists in a three-game span, joining Wilt Chamberlain, who did so in March of 1968. That's no big deal wow. there. Just, you know, one of the greatest players ever in history. Uh, 14, Jokic's passing has always been his best attribute. And after Sunday's win, he's fourth in the league with 9.3 assists per game. He's also fourth in potential assists per game at 14.8. During this hot streak, his teammates have been helping him out by knocking down shots, and he's recorded at least 14 assists in each game. Combine that with how he's controlled the glass recently, and Jokic is now the first player in NBA history with at least 14 bounds, 14 rebounds and 14 assists in three consecutive games. That one, when I read this article last night, kind of blew my mind, JB. As long as the NBA yeah. has been a league, as yeah. many amazing players as we've seen, amazing centers as we've seen, Nikola Jokic is the first one to go three games in a row with 14 rebounds and 14 assists in each game. That is absolutely mind-bending, dude. What are your thoughts on that before I move on? Well, it speaks to how difficult the task is. You know what I mean? It's underappreciated, but it's incredibly difficult. And to be able to do both three games in a row, you're putting in some work. Uh, you've got some real talent. Right. So, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's one of the things you like about the guy uh, because, hey, you don't have to be totally swayed by razzle, dazzle. Man putting in work and the stats document it. You know, stats can be funny, but he's putting in the work and the stats are backing him up. The end result is backing him up. The mind-blowing thing to me about him is his, his assists. Like you don't usually see big men with with assist numbers like his man. It's it's absolutely insane. Um, 30, 15, 15. The win over the Warriors was Jokic's biggest scoring night of this period, as he put up thirty two points for his eighteenth thirty point game of the season. In the process, he registered his third career game with at least thirty points, fifteen boards, and fifteen assists. That moved him past Wilt Chamberlain too for the second most such games in NBA history. Only Oscar Robinson eleven has more. Mm. <laughs> My goodness. 139. Jokic, of course, easily got another triple-double in the win over the Warriors on Sunday. That was his 18th triple-double of the season and the 139th of his career. As a result, he moved past LeBron James for fourth on the NBA's all-time triple-double leaderboard, including playoffs. Only Russell Westbrook, 210. Oscar Robinson, 189. And Magic Johnson, 168, have more than Jokic. I'm sorry, what? He already has more triple doubles than LeBron James. Like that one was a little that's, bit. That's impossible. <laughs> right. Like, how is like, talk about one of the most like unassuming, quiet, triple double monsters we've ever come across in our lives. It appears that Nikola Jokic is at the top of that list. Like, my goodness, he's a machine, man. Uh, 29 in the first game of this span, Jokic had a triple double in the Nuggets easy win over the Wizards. And with that, he had a triple double against all 29 other teams in the league. <laughs> Wow. The only other players who have done the same are LeBron James and Russell Westbrook, who also have the privilege of triple doubles against every team, including those they played on. And that 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 touches it up for that. Uh, Jokic, man, let me hear it. What, what you got on Jokic? I know I know you think he's one of the better players in the NBA, but do you think at this point right now he is the best all-around player in the NBA, JB? Well, it's hard 
to say he isn't, you know, because he's just everything backs him up. And man, I didn't know these stats you just gave to me. I just, I, I'm just like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> wait a minute, what? That's incredible. He's got things in his back pocket already that put him among the greats. Um, and he's not old. <laughs> so, like, my I like goodness. That. I like that. And he's not old. That's because that, he's not. He's, um, let's see, I'm looking up right now, man. He's 29. That's it. He's 29 years old and he's already turned in. Like, he could retire at the end of the season and still have one of the most ridiculous careers in NBA history. Um, Incredible. It's just, and he's so quiet and assuming about it, unassuming about it, rather. That's one of my favorite things about him, I think, is you don't hear a lot of. A lot of fuss coming from Jokic. You don't hear him getting we, into me. You do need to hear more from him, though. You know what I mean? It's one of the problems the NBA has right now, figuring out this international player influx and how we, as Americans, interact with them, understand them, become comfortable with them. We need to see this guy more. We need to, you know, for the sake of the game and people appreciating the talent, you know, uh, they've got to do a far better job of uh, putting these guys in front of us in a way. We just right. don't see enough right. of these guys. I agree, man. Um, excuse me. I think that's something you see uh, with these with these European and international players is that they're all great. Right. We, we've talked about that. God, for ages, how, how great some of these players are. You know, we talk about Doncic all the time and Jokic, and we've talked about Nowitzki and, and guys like that. But the one common thread they seem to share is that their personalities can be a bit devoid. They seem to be a little too quiet, a little too unassuming. Like, get mixed up in it a little bit. Fire off every now and again. Say something that's on your mind every now and again because uh, that's the one thing that's missing from these guys. Fantastic basketball players, but I agree with you. I would like to hear from Jokic more, you know, maybe – just something, you know. So uh, that said, friends, we are going to take a quick break and hear a word from a couple of our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to get caught up on some hockey stuff, my friends. So uh, thank you guys so much for joining us today, man. Me and JB could not be more appreciative of your support. I ask that you guys please go down there and smash that thumbs up for us. It's the biggest metric that Rumble uses to play shows in and amongst the leaderboard, so forth and so on. So you guys hang with us. We're going to hear a word from a couple sponsors. When we come back, going to get caught up in the land of hockey. So stay right there, friends. We'll be right back. In today's fast-paced world, peace of mind is priceless. That's where Badlands Media steps in. Preparing for life's uncertainties is about being ready for anything right where you are. Welcome to the Badlands Media Shop, where we've partnered with Patriot Companies, offering products that empower you to prepare for any eventuality comfortably from your own home. The Badlands Shop has everything you need to secure your peace of mind. Browse the virtual aisles. Prepare your family for the year ahead with products you can trust from companies that share your values. Whether it's growing your own food or prepping long-term storage, protecting your family, or stocking up on emergency supplies, we've got you covered. Get prepared, friends. Visit the Badlands Media Shop at badlandsmedia.tv shop today. Every purchase supports a freedom-loving business as well as Badlands Media. That's badlandsmedia.tv shop. Thank you for your continued friends or your continued support, friends. And remember, everything woke turns to shit, okay? It's true. 
Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm here to tell you about my new product from my pillow. Towels that actually work. Watch this absorbency test. Here's another towel that we randomly went out and bought. Here's one of my towels with a nice design. I don't know if you can see this, but you could line a swimming pool with this. I mean, this is crazy. Get rid of it. Towels that actually work. What a concept. I'm interrupting this commercial to let you know you can get our six-piece My Towels, regular $69.98, now only $29.98. Or you can save 25% on our brand new kitchen towels made with the same technology as our famous My Towels. Also, we have bath sheets, bath towels, washcloths, hand towels, and so much more. And the best part, with your promo code, your entire order ships absolutely free. So go to MyPillow.com or call the number on your screen. Use that promo code to get deep discounts on all my towels. And for a limited time, your order ships absolutely Welcome back, my friends, and again, thank you for your support and for your support of our advertising partners. We are now going to switch our gears toward hockey a little bit, man. There's a couple interesting things that are that are taking place this season I'm starting to keep my eye on. Um, the first is Nikita Kucherov from the Tampa Bay Lightning has already hit 100 points for the season, which is kind of ridiculous. We're not even in March yet. Um, the second is Austin Matthews, uh, which we'll, we'll show in a, a few minutes here, but hit his 50th goal of the season in only 54 games. Um which is a little bit ridiculous. Like the, the high mark, like the, the, you know, 50 goals in a season is pretty much top tier elite score in the NHL. Anyway, when you're talking 50 goals in 54 games, you're getting in 50 and 50 territory, which I believe the last person that was done, uh, it was either Alexander. I think it was Alexander Ovechkin a few years, a few years back hit 50 and 50 before that it was Cam Neely in the early nineties was the last person to go 50 for 50. And there's actually a chance that Austin Matthews could bag 60 and 60, which I don't think has ever been done. He's kind of on that race right now. So just insane. We've seen a couple numbers retired this season as well for longtime legends. Uh, Yarmir Yager was the first, and we're about to talk about another one right now. Um, Chris Chelios, his number was retired by the Chicago Blackhawks last night. This is another one of those things, JB, where it's like, uh, Man, this is a dude I grew up watching and, and loving, and now his number's retired. He's on in the Hall of Fame, and it's like, shit, I'm getting a little bit older. Um, the Chicago Blackhawks retired Chris Chelios' number seven jersey Sunday during a pregame ceremony that highlighted the defenseman's hard-charging lifestyle on and off the ice. Prior to a 3-2 to two overtime loss to the Detroit Red Wings, Chelios, dressed in all black and surrounded by family, friends, and former teammates, blew kisses of the cheering crowd after he was introduced. There were chants of, Chelly, Chelly. The path, the journey, where we came from, where I came from, it's so hard to believe this is happening, Chelios said. Chelios, 62, a Chicago native, played for his hometown team from 1990 until he was traded to Detroit in March of 99. He had 92 goals and 395 assists in 664 regular season games with the Blackhawks. He remains the team's career leader with 1,495 penalty minutes. He was the ultimate competitor, the ultimate leader, and ultimate friend, former teammate Jeremy Roenick said. Chelios played in the NHL for 26 seasons, helped in part Damn. by a rigor that is insane, right? Helped in part by a rigorous workout routine that including riding a bike and a sauna. Man, fuck that. He also played hard <laughs> off the ice, partying into the night at a handful of his favorite Chicago bars on countless memorable evenings. 
Quote, the best advice I ever got in my career was from him, former Blackhawks defenseman Gary Suter said, if you drink beer at night, you've got to sweat it out the next day. Said, wrote, nobody throws a party like Chelios. Chelios began his career with Montreal and played for the Canadians for seven seasons. This three-time Stanley Cup champion was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2013. He was also a three-time Norris Trophy winner, awarded to the NHL's top defenseman, including twice during his time in Chicago. He has been serving as a team ambassador for the Blackhawks since. Playing against him, you knew you were in for a tough night, said former NHL forward Tony Amante, who played alongside and against Chelios. He'd have five or six sticks taped, and they weren't to shoot pucks. They were to break arms. He's a beast. He does everything to an extreme. Chelios is the ninth player to have his number retired by the Blackhawks, joining Glenn Hall, Pierre Pilat, Keith Magnuson, Bobby Hull, Denny Savard, Stan Makita, Tony Esposito, and Marion Hosa. Like Pilat and Magnuson, Chelios would have some company with number seven in the Raptors at some point. Brent Seabrook was a key defenseman on three Stanley Cup champions in Chicago, also wearing number seven. Funny story about Brent Seabrook, man. Um, when I played hockey and I was playing in Canada, I was at training camp for a team called the Crows Nest Pass Timberwolves. And Brent Seabrook is the one that shattered my kneecap with a slap <clears throat> shot that went right off my kneecap unabated. I can, I'm here to confirm in person that Brent Seabrook had, had a damn shot. Um, <clears throat> so a little article there. Let's have a look. A uh, short look at the ceremony from last night in Chelios' jersey going to the rafters. I wish this could end forever. I haven't even looked at the clock. I don't know how long I'm talking, but this can't last forever. But I'll tell you what, this moment with my family, that 62. we're never going to forget this. This is the top, right? This is the top, top memory ever. I mean, <laughs> incredible. So in closing, I want to thank everybody. I couldn't be more proud to represent you, the Chicago Blackhawks, the city of Chicago, as one of your own. I hope someday someone standing here from Chicago does the same thing, but it's going to take them a long time. All right. Thank you, everybody. came here to do the greatest honor a franchise can give a player and as of today nobody can ever wear number seven again as a Chicago Blackhawk it's got to be one of the coolest honors to watch your number go up to the rafters man so a little bit more on Chelios, a short little ch video on him kind of looking back at his career, the kind of player he was and what he brought to the table for our fans out there who may, it may have been a little bit after his time. Uh, Chelios was an absolute monster. Here we go, friends. Illinois native and Hockey Hall of Fame defenseman Chris Chelios was drafted in 1981 by the Montreal Canadiens. And as was his custom, he initially struggled, but then adjusted and flourished. It's crazy, but every level that I had to take, whether it was junior, college, I seemed to make the adjustment, like the two, three-week program. That's what I always said it took to either get in shape or to adjust to the speed or the skill. Chelios waited, made a real good play by hesitating and beat Vernon. Chelios' aggressive style of play quickly gained the respect of his teammates. You know, he could play defense, offense. He was tough as nails. 1986 Stanley Cup champion. 
In his second full season in the league, Chelios and the Canadians won the Stanley Cup. To be able to break into a team and then win a cup my second year was amazing. In the 1988-89 season, Chelios had 73 points en route to winning his first Norris Trophy. The award, it was just nice that I could, I could do it and have a successful season with the team. In 1990, Chelios returned home when he was traded to Chicago. Chelios used his game of intimidation on any and all Blackhawks opponents. And now Chelios had just lost it. Chelios and Larry Murphy. He never made it easy on the opposition. A real hard-nosed guy that had a tremendous amount of talent. He wasn't playing within the rules. He's going to play on that fine line. He knew what the edge was. He knew how to play on it. During his time in Chicago, Chelios helped the Blackhawks reach the Stanley Cup final and took home two more Norris trophies. I'd like to thank the Blackhawks organization for uh, bringing me back home. In March of 1999, at age 37, Chelios was traded to the Detroit Red Wings, and his dedication and work ethic instantly impressed his former rivals. He's the most physically fit human being. He kept himself in great shape. He was always in great shape in training camp. He worked hard in the offseason. Chelios was the hardest working guy in practice worked the hardest in game. He played so hard. He loved to play against guys like Forsberg. He enjoyed playing against the other team's best players. The way that he trains, the passion that he plays with the game, I mean, you just couldn't get enough of this guy. In 2001-2002, Chelios's plus 40 rating led the league, and the season culminated with him winning his second Stanley Cup. Wow, yeah! Once we won the Cup and I was part of that team, I really felt like part of the Red Wing family. Looking for a trailer. Back to Chelios. Score! Then, in 2008, Chelios became the oldest active player to win the Stanley Cup when he won his third. At 48 years old, the 11-time All-Star and USA hockey legend finally called it a career. He played in 26 seasons, which is tied with Gordie Howe for the most in NHL history. We never thought it would end. We never thought it would end with Chris. How long is he going to keep going? Chelios played in 1,651 NHL games, more than any other defenseman in history. If you called Chelly up right now and offered him a contract, he'd try and go play right now. I mean, the guy is just uh, the ultimate. I don't doubt it. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the greatest defensemen to ever play the game. Definitely the greatest American defenseman to play the game. A grinder and kept uh, his body in great shape. It's, it's absurd. Um, 26 seasons man like the guy played in the nhl until he was 48 years old jb as a defenseman at that like it's i can't wrap my head around playing at that level until you're 48 years that mean that means at my age right now dude still had seven seasons left in him. I'm like, what? my goodness that brings what, it home what, what, what kind of a monster <laughs> you know like i just i can't i can't fathom uh, you know, and his workout routine was legendary. Like the guy was, that's literally all he did. And it shows because when you're 62 and look the way he looked in that, that speech right there, you're like, my God, I don't think Kirk Maltby was lying. Like if somebody offered Chelios a contract, I think he'd try to make it work. And I wouldn't put it past me. able to go out there and lay down a couple shifts a game, even at 62, man, it's ridiculous. So sticking with the Blackhawks, we talked about it uh, a couple months ago when <clears throat> Patrick Kane signed with the Detroit Red Wings, Patrick Kane was a Blackhawk forever and then traded to the Rangers last season. Um, and then he had double hip resurfacing surgery in the offseason, which had never really been done before. And he's come back from it. And right now, since he signed with the Red Wings, man, he's a point-per-game player. Um, 
which is kind of, it's just another one of those head scratching things. Like you're not supposed to be able to have these hip surgeries and come back and be a productive NHL player. And here's Patrick Kane in typical Patrick Kane fashion, flying the middle bird and saying, yeah, okay, watch me. Um, so ironically enough, JB last night, uh, with Chelios's retirement ceremony in, in Chicago, it was also the first time that Patrick Kane was going to be back in Chicago since being traded uh, to the Rangers last season. It was going to be his first time in Chicago as a Detroit Red Wing, which is Chicago's biggest rivalry. Chicago and Detroit's rivalry is funny because they hate each other, but they love each other and they'll respect the mm -hmm. hell out of each other. You saw that Chelios there ended his career with the Red Wings. It didn't matter a hill of beans to Blackhawks fans. It's, it was fine. Um, so what, what happened last night? You know, there were a lot of people kind of wondering how Chicago would treat Kane when he came back. Would he get a lot of booze? Would he, how would they treat him? What happened was arguably one of the most bone-chilling standing ovations I've ever seen given to a player. Have a look, JB. Now, I didn't rip the wow. whole thing because this went on for three or four minutes. Like, they just wouldn't shut up. Um, hockey, hockey does have a, 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 you know, a family feel to it on a certain level, right? It does, man. And it's – he's not retiring. You know what I mean? This is the middle of a regular season game against their most heated rivalry. His first trip back in town, and they blanket him with cheers. Like, it was, it was awesome to see. And like I said, it went on for four or five minutes. Like, they just would not stop. And finally, like – he kind of started like he had to kind of start to woe him down a little bit so they could get the damn game underway. Um, but it was pretty awesome. Now, JB, you and I talk about how sports has a weird way of like rolling fate back around. Sports does weird shit sometimes, right? That you can't really explain. Here's one of those things because in that game in which they recorded, or I'm sorry, retired Chris Chelios's number, in which Patrick Kane returned back to Chicago for the first time since being traded last year after winning three Stanley Cups with that team and being arguably the biggest part of their dynasty in the mid-2010s. Um, who do you gather scored the game-winning goal in overtime, JB? No, it couldn't no. be Patrick Kane, right? Of course it is. Have a look. He gains the zone. Dropped off. Jones. Jones. Shoot, save. Rebound, save. Oh, look out to break it. Ahead for guess who? Patrick Kane. He's in. He scores! Patrick Kane on the AC used to call home for 16 seasons. Red Wings a winner in overtime. I mean, <laughs> you, you can't script it any better, my friend. Was he, was he skating around it and kind of sort of saying, you damn Skippy, you damn Skippy? 
Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of an annoying shit that way, but it is what it is. Well, that's damn sure a way to get your line change. In the game. It's one of the things we love about sports, man. They have this way of writing storylines that often you couldn't pay writers to come up with better scripts, man. I mean, uh, Chelios' retirement ceremony was announced before the season began, before Patrick Kane even thought about signing with Detroit. Just so happens that Detroit's first game back is, or first game in Chicago with Kane is when they're lifting Chelios' jersey and then Kane scores the game winner. I mean, does it really get much cooler than that, man? I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, we, we talked about Austin Matthews is 50 and 54. Uh, wanted to take a look at his 50th from the other night. 50 goals in the NHL is kind of a milestone for players because not clearly not everybody can do it. So, um, and the fact that Austin Matthews is American just makes it that much better. That, like, excuse me while I laugh at the irony of the fact that the dude helping to save Canada's most beloved franchise, the Maple Leafs, is American. Pretty funny. All right, here we go. Austin Matthews, 50th goal in 54 games. Gets to it. Gets it to Bertuzzi. In for Matthews. Harder's on the move. Curls back at the half boards and drops for Nylander. Nylander a long look. Murder in front. And he was looking for 34 again. Back it comes to Lilligren. Matthews shoots. Scores. Number 50 for Austin Matthews in his backyard. Homecoming 50th, and all the Leaf fans in the building on their feet. Brian, a spot on the ice where he has just dominated this year. So many of his offensive plays have come from tight in that corner. Looks like a bad angle. Vomalka's thinking this one's coming across for a tip-in on Bertuzzi, and instead, it's just the quickness of the release. A short side in the arms up. Mom and Dad, there you go. Bringing it home and getting number 50. Did you notice his reaction was just like, yes, another day at the office. This is what I do. This <laughs> <laughs> is what I don't even act surprised. I do this. This is this is me. Like he, you would think scored your 50th goal of the season. You'd be a little bit more like, hell yeah, Austin Matthews is just like, okay. You know, it was almost almost like what's his name in Friday, dude? Red, yeah. Like that was it. He's just like Austin, yeah. And then move on, finish the game. Man, it's incredible player, man. He's one of the best American-born players I've ever seen. It, it's 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 one of the things that excites me about the the incoming 2026 Olympics in a couple years. I, I talked about the NHL saying their players are going back, um, and the team that the the United States is going to have the potential to field or, or put on the ice rather 
going to give us our best chance to win a gold medal since 1980. And I'm pretty excited about it. The team is going to be no joke. I mean, obviously Austin Matthews is going to be on the team and look, Canada is going to have a damn strong team as well. They always do. Um, Sweden always has a really tough team, but uh, this USA team is going to be loaded from top to bottom, like probably the strongest team we're ever, we've ever sent to the Olympics. So I'm it's over two years away and I'm already excited about it. If that says anything, cause it's just like, ah, oh, like we, we need to see that, especially after uh, 2010 in Vancouver, you know, taking the gold medal game to the, to overtime and Sidney Crosby won the gold for Canada in overtime. I still remember that game. Like it was yesterday. That shit crushed me. I was mad for days, dude. I was like despondent mad for days. I was like, didn't even want to talk about hockey for like a week. I was like, it's dead to me. Stop it. Free melt all the ice, turn it to water. Fuck it. Let him swim. I was mad. <coughs> um, so moving on. Thursday when we pre-recorded our last episode, I don't know how I missed it, probably because there's a lot going on, but um Thursday was actually the 44th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. And last year we kind of took a look at that. And it's probably something as long as I do sports talk, every time the anniversary comes around, I'm gonna take a look at it because it was one of the most seminal moments in sports history, especially for Americans. I mean, you're you can't be an American sports fan, even if you're not a hockey fan and not know what the Miracle on Ice was. Um, it's just one of those things that kind of expanded all over. So um, as we start heading toward the tail end of the show for today, my friends, let's take a look at the miracle on ice from kind of like a 40,000 foot view of everything going on. Then we're going to talk about it for a couple minutes because I had a couple um, points that kind of relate to today's world, JB, that this this will actually kind of segue into, my friends. So let's uh, let's have a look at this video. This is the miracle on ice from 1980. The late 60s and early 70s, we were a fractured country in terms of Vietnam. And patriotism was not really involved. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. The defining moment of the late 70s for Americans was the hostage crisis. Our hostages were being held in Iran. The country wasn't very happy with Jimmy Carter. We really didn't feel that good about each other as a country. And and so you have all of this confluence of events taking place. And it puts in perspective what it meant for the country, what the country was going through at the time, the Cold War and the height of it. something that that has become much more than a hockey game and it became a political and social and economic statement somebody wrote that the ice will melt and turn to gold before the u.s wins a game like this and a bunch of college kids basically in effect meeting a an, an amateur team but we all knew what they were they were all listed as soldiers in the soviet team but they were hockey players they were the best hockey players in the world the soviets looming in the middle round with an undefeated record and overflowing confidence we were going to those olympics thinking that it was going to be capable well right now i think the russians are the greatest hockey team in the world did you guys feel like you were actually soldiers more than you were hockey players and was this kind of a representation of the cold war against the soviet mike snyder losing it Deflected in from the point. The Soviet Union takes a one to nothing lead. Team USA was assembled by coach Herb Brooks 
from the University League. Herb's goal was to get them to focus their hatred on him and be unified and become one. If you hate one person more, it, it brings you together. He was telling me he was trying to put together an American style of hockey that would reflect who America is. In the tournament thus far, outside of Krabukin, number five, a defenseman. Havlin taking it away to the U.S. Havlin up ahead to Snyder. stronger. Nobody ever doubted that. We were professionals and they were just students. These guys obviously have played together for years and years and they were a machine. We had a bunch of college kids ages 19, 20, 21 taking on this professional team. You know, if it's only like three to one, that's about all we can ask for. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. Long shot, the easy save by Trediak, but Johnson is there. And scores with one second to play in the period. Right now, the clock shows nothing, but it was stopped at one when we looked up as the goal was scored. And the United States have equalized. Chechak did not look too good. Big, big goal for the U.S. team. Tim Morrow took the shot. That Russian coach went berserk. He took Krasiak out and he never put him back in. Tiag, who was the Soviet Union uh, goalie, and I think universally considered to be one of the best ever to play the game. There's the horn. That was that stupid. That this was so much more than a game, wasn't it? I mean, this was really, I don't think it's an understatement to say this was freedom versus communism. You knew that game was huge as it was unfolding. You know, the U.S. had no chance to be the Soviets. The Soviets dominated the play because they outshot the U.S. 39 to 16. Up ahead to Malzev. Malzev on a breakaway. The U.S. trailed three separate times. It was like thunder. The energy, I think, could have sustained for nine periods of hockey. Soviets take the lead in the second period, and they outshoot the U.S. in the second period, something like 15 to 3. The Muskin tested only once thus far. The American with perhaps their final rush on this power play opportunity. 13 seconds left in the penalty. You know, the country was looking for something to rally against. I've been on the air for earthquakes. That may have been rockier than San Francisco. You know, all of a sudden it's three to three and the place is gone crazy. What are, what are we seeing here? 
Can this really be? Well, here's where the game becomes a little bit painful. The 1980s have been born in turmoil, strife, and change. They want the enthusiasm, but they also want the control. And they've got to find the proper balance. I cannot imagine being in that arena for that, dude. <laughs> I mean, my God. Even right now, it's giving me goosebumps. It's giving me goosebumps, and I wasn't even alive when this happened, dude. I can't imagine the patriotism you must have felt as an American the day after this game. You just beat them at their sport, their shit, and you just own them in it. Seemingly no one, certainly not a bunch of college kids, could stop them. 5.46, remaining in the game, the United States, on top. Tonight, we skate. 4.55, remaining in the third turn. Tonight, we stay with them. 2.25, 2.24, and we shut them down. Because we can. That final, I want to say, 30 seconds, just it was this kind of sporting event. Johnson over to Ramsey. Big Legendon gets checked by Ramsey. McClanahan is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Silk. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Trejak said, they looked like the happiest people in the world. We wished we were them. Bobby Eddy tells us he was in a restaurant called Jimmy's across from our hotel when the result was announced there, and he said all the people in the place spontaneously stood up and sang our national anthem. I went outside and I saw fireworks mm. and I saw people dancing wow. in the streets in Lake Placid. We are proud now to present the victors in the ice hockey competition. I remember how uplifted the country felt. It was like putting a man on the moon. It was like, we can do anything. If we can beat the Russians in hockey, we can beat poverty. To be able to bring a country together, not so much just, you know, the sporting nation, but the entire country. This was such a unique event. Something that it never happened before. I can't imagine a scenario where it's going to happen again. The game forever dubbed the Miracle on Ice. A win for the ages spanning beyond sports. It's difficult to overstate the importance of the Miracle on Ice. It's been credited with everything from Hollywood's obsession with sports movies to a rebirth of national pride in America in the 1980s. How... Um... How almost point like it, it? So many situations surrounding that game and the world at that time, and this country at that time, mirror exactly what we're seeing today, man. That kind of um, 
that game is a spring point for for you know the, this discussion about to be had is is not necessarily sports centric, but it kind of it kind of vaults off of that incident because we find ourselves eerily in the same spot. We're again fighting off communism. We're again staring staring down the throat of nasty communists that want to take over this country. And what the tie-in is that um, the other night, JB, and I, I had texted you about it. You and I emailed about it a little bit as well. Um, and that is during that whole period, the Soviet Union and the United States, this hockey game, the Russian hockey team itself was actually undergoing a fair bit of turmoil before that tournament, before the 1980 Olympic tournament. Their head coach had been uh, Vladimir Tarasov. And Tarasov was like the godfather of Russian hockey. He was like, um, full disclosure, like when I started playing hockey, the first hockey handbook I got was written by Tarasov. And a lot of my style in goaltending was, in fact, Russian. A lot of my training uh, came from the Russian textbooks because those guys just fucking got it. Like he understood that um, he came, he was the first coach to realize that, hey, when summer comes around and all these outdoor rinks melt, we we can't train. That's a problem. You got to be one. So he, Tarasov is literally the guy that invented dry land and off ice training for hockey players. And that's part of the reason the Russians were so indomitable because they trained so hard off the ice that when they got onto the ice in those last three or four minutes of the game, their conditioning was through the roof and they never got gassed and they would just keep out skating your ass all game. And that's how the United States beat them. That's why Herb Brooks beat those kids into the ground with skating day after day after day to the point where they're literally passing out and throwing up, just can't do anything else, but try to stand up and throw up. And that was because you saw at the end of those highlights there, what team was gassed. It wasn't the United States. It was the first time the Russians had ever been skated into the dirt by another team. And so the whole time this is going on with the Russian team, uh, like uh, to go back to Tarasov, he was their head coach. Well, a couple months before the turn, about a year before this tournament, the Russian red army lets him go. And they let him go because he was a, a Russian romanticist, right? But not a communist romanticist. He wanted a free Russia. He wanted a peaceful Russia. He saw potential and that that's what he wanted, right? And he started letting that be known. He was also a fan of, hey, we've got some really talented guys on this Russian Red Army team. We should let them go pursue careers in the NHL. We shouldn't just keep them here. They need to go play with the best. His standpoint was, hey, you want Russia to be the best in the world. We've got to allow our players to go play with the best in the world to show that they're the best in the world. The Red Army was having none of this. They didn't want to hear it at all. So Tarasov, out the door. The guy that basically invented Russian hockey and the guy that made that team what it was sent his shit out the door because he wasn't a big fan of, of communism, right? So they bring in Tikhanov, who's the hardliner, redline communist. He's their boy. He's going to do everything they say. Well, the veterans on this team weren't happy with that because these guys saw the writing on the wall. They're like, we're never getting out of here. We're not going to get to the NHL. Um, we don't like the fact that, I mean, it's they were called the Red Army because they were literally the Red Army. All these dudes served in the Army. They had to do exactly what they were told to do when they were told to do it. And so we get past the Olympics, and I think it was 1982. They had a summit series coming up with Canada. It was Russia against Canada, basically for hockey supremacy in the world at the time. That's no small deal tournament, right? And Valery Karlamov was basically Russia's equivalent to Wayne Gretzky. And... They show up to the team facility to head to Canada and Karlamov's, you know, got all of his shit. He's on the bus and they say, hey, man, uh, Tikhanov would like a word with you. And so he comes off the bus and has a word with Tikhanov, the head coach, gets back on the bus five minutes later, grabs his shit and says, well, I'm not going on the trip. So here we have five minutes before this team's departing for Canada. 
their Wayne Gretzky has just been told, you're not going on the trip to play Canada. You're staying here in Russia. So JB, as luck would have it, <clears throat> while the plane is literally in the air heading to Canada, Valerie Karlamov and his wife are headed back home. And they just so happen to get in a car accident and Karlamov is killed. Um, Karlamov was very outspoken against the new coach. He was very outspoken against the fact that the CCCP was not letting players go to America to, America to pursue NHL careers. He was not happy about the direction of the Russian team. He was not happy about the way veterans are being treated. Um, and then um, he's killed in a car wreck after a dump truck crosses the center line and hits he and his wife head on. And of course, the dump truck driver was OK because a dump truck is going to defeat a small car 100 out of 100 times. Dude, that was a hit. They took him out because he wouldn't shut up. They made him stay home so they could take him out. And they they did it while the team was in the air so the team would largely be unaffected by the news. Um, my point in this is, and I'm, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go on to a smaller rant after I make my point, and then I'll turn it over to you, JB. Is that the fucking hero worship of Vladimir Putin and his movement should probably oh tone down a bit. Oh now look, God. you and I, you and I do differ. A little Don't bit on this, but uh, now ultimately, started. JB, ultimately, JB, you and I align on the same page. This dude has been sucked into that fucking Trump quicksand. OK, now my point in this is, is that Karlamov was taken out. Russian players were not allowed at this time to leave to pursue careers in the NHL uh, to the point where in the late it got to the point where in the late 80s, when the NHL was drafting these players to come into the NHL, <clears throat> that um that these guys basically had to defect to come play in the NHL. There was a handful of Russian players that uh, literally came over. It was an exhibition game in the United States, and these fucking guys stayed. Like, they they vamoosed on their team while the team was was in the country. That's, that's how they had to go about getting over here. Um, my point is, man, guys, Putin was a colonel in the KGB at this point in time when all this was going on with these Russian hockey players. Like, he, he could have stepped, like... He did nothing to help these guys. And at the time when Karlamov was taken off, I'm not going to say he did or didn't have something to do with it. The point is that what we're seeing in the world is not just exclusive to politics. These these communists have had their hands in everything and they control, want to control everything. And they made there were plenty of Russian players in that team who wanted no part of communism, wanted no part of what that country was doing during the cold war and, and all that shit. They wanted to leave. They wanted to get out, but they weren't afforded that opportunity. There were even guys that were thrown in gulags. There were guys like Karlamov who just died in a car wreck. Um, and I just think I'm using this story, the story of the miracle on ice and the story of what those Russian hockey players went through playing under the red army and how mistreated they were and how they weren't afforded better opportunities to take their skills abroad. Um, it's not that much different than what we see in communists in the real world. It's it's the same thing, and it goes to show that they really have been infiltrating and taking over everything for ages. And it wasn't just because of the Russian team. It was because the way their policies were and the way the Russian team was, it affected the game as a whole because of stances that if Russia decided to boycott something, well, now you've got to boycott something, and now you're going to two of the best teams in this tournament, as an example. It's... um. It just shows the spiderweb of it, dude. And it shows that hero worship any which way, JB, um, aside for anybody but Jesus Christ and maybe your fathers or mothers, in my opinion, is seriously misplaced and needs to stop in this movement. And not just for Putin, but for just about everybody. Stop the hero worship. Because, yeah. you know, if you're going to come at me, like, 
Putin, some savior of the world, white knight, Jesus Christ on a horse. I'm going to remind you of this stuff that he took part with, with this CCCP hockey team. And basically how they made those guys live in gulags while strapping skates on every now and again and getting to go play hockey as well. Like that's, it, we got to stay grounded, JB. We got to stay grounded and we've got to, we've got to, you know, you've, you've certainly opened my eyes to a few things with this. And I, I appreciate the fact that you and I can have discussions without either one of us being so fucking egotistical that we dig our heels in and say, no, I'm not going to hear what you've got to say about this um, because your points are valid, man. And I really do think in this situation, we're witnessing more of a, gotcha bitch sucked into my quicksand by Trump more so than a benevolency by these other folks to want to work with him. It's a arm up behind your back. If you don't do what I say, you're going to do. I'm going to snap your shoulder kind of deal is, is where I'm at with it. And to me, this hockey story just kind of sums up what we're dealing with here with these communists. Like they will literally take you and your wife out in a car by dump truck when you were supposed to be going off to the biggest tournament in your life to shut you up because you don't like communism. I guess that's my point. And we need to be careful. Yeah about how many of these communists we're going to hear a worship and support. And especially in a, a movement, we're, we're talking about sports, of course, but it's within our movement. It's uh, I was so happy when you did the whole name it and claim it thing with uh, sports for conservatives by conservatives. Exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. But the thing is I'm looking at this miracle on I story. I'm trying to remember you know, I was in the United States Army at that time. Uh, I had been uh, at Fort Bragg when a lot of this Iranian stuff was coming up and was 100% convinced I was going to be in a unit <laughs> that was going to be sent over there when some shit really popped off. And uh, then I got processed to Germany and uh, for my last year of service. And this is when the miracle on ice. I, I was trying to recall, okay, what happened? Where was I? And all like that. And then I did some research. I don't remember if we talked about this last year or not, but the damn game was on tape delay. Did we talk about that last year? I don't I don't recall it. I don't think we did. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people even know it or remember it these days. But, you know, I've talked to you before about how precarious the NBA was and the championships were on tape delay. The damn Miracle on Ice game was presented to the country on tape delay three hours after it had started. And so... I think I was in Germany. I might very well have been in the field. I don't know that I watched the game. I read about the game, you know. Uh, but it was an incredible moment in American history because, you know, hell, I had watched a little bit of hockey, Southern boy that I was. I didn't know a damn thing about hockey. I just knew it was a fast-paced game. You couldn't see the damn puck. But, damn, these motherfuckers are skating on ice like that. It was just <laughs> incredible. And you knew the Russians were like uh, the number one team. So it was an incredible, you know, incredible moment. But you also knew something about the history. Again, I was in a frontline unit in Germany, you know, on the East German border. We were studying Russians. And um, I wasn't fooled about the Russians. I'm not fucking fooled about the Russians now. And I listened to some people in our community talk stupid shit. And I know it's stupid shit. I don't give a flying fuck what they think or say. It's stupid shit, but, um, you know, you have to live and learn. You have to live and learn. And I think um, I'm still trying to think through on Wednesday how I'm going to do this perfect tweet from Donald Trump because I thought it was a perfect tweet on Navalny's death. And even it links back to parallels 
to what's happening right now in terms of what they are doing to Donald Trump. And what this, what this guy we keep singing the praises of, some of us, it did to Navalny. And it's like, at what point do you take a step back and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I've been played. Because it's what the Russians do. They are very good with narratives. They are very good with stories they set out and amplify and infiltrate and insist. So, you know, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to go too crazy here. The but, thing um, is, um, mo most communists are atheists and the devil works through them and the devil is a very deceitful individual, meaning people are masters at propaganda as are, as are these Chinese communists, man. Um, and this is... <laughs> This is why it's important to stay on your toes and stay grounded. Like I said, don't get floating off too far in one opinion. Don't get too married to one theory because it, we've seen, uh, especially since Donald Trump got in office, man, how many times have uh, I've done it dozens of times, posited a theory that ends up getting shot to shit because maybe you didn't see all angles or you didn't understand and, all perspectives. And because of the battle that has to be fought again, this is, this is, you know, something of a world historic moment, the battle that has to be fought could not be done in a normal fashion. It had to be irregular warfare and there were right. going to always be competing confusions. It's just, we live in a world of competing confusions. And that means you got to humble yourself. You can have a theory. I got a freaking theory. Everybody's got a damn theory, but you have to know that, you know what, your ass can be wrong. It's almost guaranteed. You're going to be wrong because of the nature of the beast and the way the battle had to be fought. Right. right. right? So there we are. And, you know, look, um, Q tells us we have it all. Q told us patriots are in control. We've been taught about game theory and 5G warfare and irregular warfare. Um, this, you know, he Q also said in his early drops, look, there were bad people that were brought to bear for us because of the options we put to them almost think of a sum of all fears scenario at the end of that movie when the the cabal of bad guys that has tried to rouse a world war um at the end of that movie they're all getting caught and they're all getting what's coming to them i picture that's what's what's happened here is that this q team white hat team good guys whatever the hell you want to call them at some point got a lot of these dudes and said look you're gonna do what we say either willingly or you're done right now and some of these dudes have just been game theoried to a point where they can't do anything but go along with every decision they're making. And that was all game planned by this military slash Trump led slash uh, God driven plan we're seeing now is that um, we're going to use some people to our own ends because God can use whoever he wants to accomplish a mission. A mission. Cyrus is a fantastic example of that. Uh, the Apostle Paul is a fantastic example of that. Right. Um and I, I agree with you, man. I really do that just because Q said, uh, what if Russia, China and others are coordinating with POTUS to bring down the NWO? Number one, we have to remember Q told us this information is necessary. Number two, that post that drop in and of itself, JB, is kind of vague. He says, what if they are coordinating with? It doesn't mean working with of their own volition. It means coordinating with. It could mean they've been leveraged to do what they're being told to do where they've been put into a kind of position where they're the only moves they can make are already pre-known exactly like playing chess. You can game somebody in a point to chess where you can look at the board and be like, 
they got seven or eight things they can do right now. None of them are going to put me in checkmate, and I can counter every single one of the options they have. That's how you need to view how Trump is working these people. That's how I view it anyway, at least where I've come to over the last few months anyway. And I don't think the situation is very much different from that, JB. I think it's just like the DeSantis thing, the, the Haley thing we're seeing. He is sucking everybody he comes into contact to into this quicksand of exposing their corruption and and outing their shit. He does it with everybody he comes across by shining the spotlight on them and almost inverting the process through a period of time. We see it every single time without fail with this. We, you know, last August, there were so many people reeing because Atlanta indicted him and because his mugshot was taken. And we're like, oh, man, so many people are like, they're, they're going to get him this time. They might. And look what's happening now. It's, it is fucking clockwork with this guy, JB. It is clockwork. If he attaches himself to somebody, you can assure yourself at some point, unless it's one of the very small people he actually trusts, at some point that person's shit's going to come to bear and it's going to come right back down on them. So I think, sure. and I'm going to ruffle some know, feathers with this one, I think the hero worship from some folks in our movement of Vladimir Putin there's going to be a little bit of walking that back and Homer Simpson into the bushes as this year unfolds. I do believe I agree with you on that. Without, JB. A, doubt. Without a doubt, without a doubt. I just, you don't really have to think much, you know, you can overthink it and that leads you down the wrong road, but pay attention to what Trump did during his administration. It was not Russia friendly and pay attention to what the Democrats did. They talked all this stupid Russia shit, but it was hiding some of their, Russia shit projection. We need to take we need to take heed from that. But uh, you know, I'm a patient man. I'm willing to let it play out. I have total confidence in uh, Donald Trump and his team. And uh, the after action report is going to be written, and I'm I'm confident yeah. I'm going to be satisfied with it. The the debrief is going to be interesting, as it were. Mm -hmm. And I think I think a lot of folks, including myself, I don't look when when I make my theories, positive my opinions, whatever. I never put myself above anybody. I've been wrong more times than I can count, JB. I'm going to be wrong more times than I'll ever remember moving forward in my life. Um, all that I know is that we don't know, right? So you've got to keep your ear to the ground. You've got to stay wise to information. You've got to be willing to take a look at every angle, and you've got to be willing to take a step back and say, damn, I missed that one. I was wrong there. That was not me. That, that dude was right on the money there. And a lot of people can't do that. They can't confront the yeah. ego enough to say I was wrong. Yes. And, and so what if you're wrong or you barked up a tree uh, in an effort, a, a well-intentioned and good effort to try and make sense of craziness? Because really, that's all all of us are doing. We've seen real craziness. Something has to explain it. But right. uh, I invite everybody to go take a look. J.E. Dyer put a post up recently. And she talked about this product called Stingray. And I think if you pay attention to the Stingray technology and you understand how law enforcement works, I'm just not sure the FBI has sold us out the way people think. I'm not sure a bunch of our institutions have sold us out the way people think. I think Donald Trump got a handle on it and prosecuted the necessary irregular warfare effort. And the Patriots are in control. But it's just a drama that has to play out in a certain way in order to internally prove to us and externally show the world we understand what's happening. We know what has been happening and we're done with the shit. So, right. you know, I don't um, think you're wrong at all. And, uh, dude, me and Joe catch flack on Eye of the Storm sometimes, obviously, from a lot of trolls and shills. 
um, as as they do. Um, but look, um, before Christopher Ray took over the FBI, can you tell me how much of the FBI's corruption was ever on front street for the public to view JB? Because I don't think it was a lot at all. They they hid their shit pretty well, didn't they? And then Christopher Ray comes in. And we're trolled, told to trust Ray, which at first was kind of a laughable comment from Q, right? And then you realize that Christopher Ray, in his first six months in office, went to all 56 FBI field offices. Sounds to me like a man scoping out the location, seeing what's what, right? And then there's this interview Christopher Ray gave in 20 of 18 at the World Economic Forum. I know, re the World Economic Forum, re devil. For all the small-minded folks that don't understand, infiltration goes both ways, and there's no way you can topple the WEF without having your own infiltrators in there. Um, but Christopher Ray gives this interview. And, JB, you could switch Christopher Ray out with Donald Trump in this interview, and they would be the same. Because in this interview, he's talking about how China is our biggest enemy, how they've infiltrated this country through big, doing large part of the Confucius Institutes all over the place, how they've infiltrated our medical systems, our education systems how they've infiltrated our cyber systems. He, he goes on a rip in this interview about China. Then he moves on to Russia and communism and how that's our enemy. Then he talks about the southern border and how it needs to be seamed up and secured. This is all from 2018. Basically, my point is Chris Ray has been playing the long game and showing corruption within the FBI. He's clearing the shit out. And Q told us in the very, very beginning, folks, there are more good people than bad. And it's the same thing you and I say about rigging sports and sports. It does not take an entire team. It takes... Two or three motherfuckers. That's it. It takes two or three motherfuckers at the top of the CIA. Two or three motherfuckers at the top of the FBI. That is all it takes to turn the shit sideways. That is it. Well, if you're Donald Trump and you've rooted some of these people out, folks, it isn't instantaneous. It's going to take years for this shit to flow downhill and for everything to get put in its proper place. Um, and we were told as well it had to be this way. Sometimes you can't tell them. You have to show them. Dude... I've been a part of the truther movement since I was fucking 12 years old. I've been a part of digging for truth and finding out all different realms of truth since before the internet was really a thing. Okay. And I'm just telling you, I've never seen the deep state this exposed. I've never seen them so ready to go down. This is not par for the course for them at all. They are clearly rattled. They're clearly getting messed with. And there's clearly things coming down the pipeline. I think that 2024 is going to be huge. I think the election is going to be our precipice moment. Now, I don't know if the election goes off without a hitch and we see Trump elected and he's back in and that's that. I have half a mind that says everything we've been waiting for probably happens on election day, that they're going to try to steal this bitch again. And that's it. That's the red line. Or Trump wins and they go batshit and don't accept the win. And we see the riots like it's not lost to me in that Black Swan article I did, JB. I said that there was that one Q drop that said, Mass riots are being organized in response to the election. The win won't be accepted. That didn't happen in 2020, did it? So when's it going to happen? And you have to ask yourself, where were all the Soros and Antifa clowns when Roe versus Wade got overturned? They were pretty quiet for that, weren't they? They've been pretty quiet with a couple of white on black police instances over the last couple of years. They've really not chosen to go in on that. So what the fuck are they waiting for? probably waiting for Trump to get elected again, and then they're going to go bat shit is kind of what I'm thinking, man. That's the way it's kind of gearing toward. I don't know, but I know that where we stand right now is a moment in history this country has not faced often, man, and I think that everything we were told in relevance to Q and everything Trump said about I have it all, about we caught the swamp, I think it's all true, and I think that's part of... <clears throat> I have a theory. Let's see what you think about this, JB, is that that case in Atlanta, the Fannie case... 
I think what happened there was they got to a discovery phase and Fanny and them went, Oh shit. He's not joking. He does have, all right, guys, we got to torpedo this fucking case. Like we can't let this see the inside of a courtroom. Um, because it's the only thing, there are two options here. Either they really are that fucking stupid and they didn't understand this is what would happen with it. Or B, they were told to do exactly this because they're that fucking stupid. And that's how this is going to be exposed. Um, either way, there's something destroying that case. And I think it's tied into the discovery, but I also don't think that shit's going to stay hit, hidden for either. Trump didn't say we have it all just for us to keep wondering if we in fact have it all. At some point, we're going to realize that he has it all. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole thing about Stingray, <laughs> because uh, these people did not understand. And it's not new technology. They mm -hmm. did not understand how they could be tracked. And the hesitancy the FBI had with letting everybody know what they had and what they could do as good guys. And so, but they, you know, I've said to people, uh, Donald Trump, Teen Trump, they've been on a years long educational process teaching the American public civics and how the process works and doesn't work, how TV has lied to you about some courtroom drama. A lot of people watch that. Fanny Willis stupidity and it's like why isn't the judge doing this he's letting this dumbass chick show the whole freaking world how much of a dumbass chick she is and, and that's all part of the process yeah and it's this, this judge <laughs> is another example of what we talk about right because so many people are reading about mcafee and i'm like have you all heard some of his comments that the media has chosen not to highlight like the dude He's, I'm not going to say he's a conservative, but he's not one of their far left leaning liberals either. Like that's the, and the thing is, unless the judge is 100% corrupt communist asshole, even a leftist judge is not going to take being disrespected in his court and somebody trying to make a fool of him, which is what they tried to die by lying about the relationship and putting that kind of shit off to the side. He doesn't seem very pleased about it. Well, I think some people don't, you know, you got to remember, you got to remember. We are in the South, right? And we are proud Southerners, right? And that judge is a graduate of Emory Law School, a proud law school. So is Fanny. And one thing you don't like is for one of your graduates to embarrass the fuck out of you. And she is embarrassing the fuck out of Emory. And I don't think that judge is happy, okay? No. And I think that judge is privately hearing a lot of shit from a lot of Emory people. And they said, look, son, you can't blink on this case. Right. A lot of white people have been blinking for years. You can't blink on this case. And I don't think he is. I don't think he will either. And you're talking about stingray and tracking. Look, we were shown um, through extensive proofs, whether it be uh, 2000 mules and the, the geolocation on, on their phones. And then the government themselves, the fucking government themselves told us that geotracking is in fact real because that's how they were rounding up J6 Patriots. So let me posit you folks this who want to re about all these people coming over the border, which you have every right to re over. I'm not saying you don't. It pisses me off, too. But there's something all these folks coming across the border have in common, JB. They're all being given phones and they're all being given credit cards. Gotcha, bitch. Like that's, that's my feeling. You, you said the FBI, not as far gone as people think border patrol, not as far gone as people think. 
Oh, look at these, look at these little terrorists coming across our border of terror. Welcome aboard. Here's your phone, friend. Go wherever in the country you want to, because we're going to know exactly where you are every step of the way. And Ghost of Base Patrick Henry even talked about how real this is because unfortunately his brother was murdered. And through the course of that investigation, he literally watched the police showing him um, them triangulating phone positions of his brother and his murderer that night as they're going around the city. It's real. It's 100% mm -hmm. real. And if you 100%. think, yeah, and it, it, look, Q says, trust Ray. We were told that there's more good people than bad. Donald Trump has talked about the FBI, right? If you think that all these people coming in over the border ain't being tracked and watched, ooh, buddy. And that's probably exactly what they think, which is the point. A little frustrated. I get it. But uh, listen, you have to think like Sun Tzu because Donald Trump's a Sun Tzu aficionado. You win the war without firing a shot, right. but you also engage substantive fakery to fool your enemy. And if you don't think they have a data mining tool that's collecting <laughs> and tracking and identifying every freaking body, you ain't paying attention. So, you know, but it's all about discovering the networks because more than the people and a bunch of those damn people coming into our country just want to freaking work. That is a fact of the matter. But they're sponsored by some wrongdoers. You know, you got some fucking people that want to see our country screwed up who are pumping and pushing a lot of these people. And that is who we really want to get. That is who we really want to get after. Mm -hmm. And you got to build that database. It's, that can then be data mined all over the globe. It's like we, do don't, it. we don't care about little Jimmy over here slinging his dime bags of pot, right? We care about this dude over here with the kilos of cocaine and heroin. That's the fish we want. And the motherfucking Chinese bringing in all the fentanyl. Fentanyl, yep. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, as much as some of you folks want to read about some of these deep state players... As much as you don't want to admit it, some of them are just the guy in the corner slinging a dime bag of pot. They don't matter in the grand scheme. They just need to get to the bigger fish. And that's and so how all this, I'm going to spin all this back to sports, is that me and JB have painstakingly went through efforts the last year and a half to show folks the shit's happening in sports, too. You don't, up until the last couple years, I can't tell you the last time I saw an owner with as high of a profile as James fucking Dolan get accused and investigated for human and sex trafficking. I can't tell you the last time over the last 20 years somebody as big of a name as Vince fucking McMahon is going down for the same stuff. Me and you have talked about how former athletes like Charles Tillman, he's now a legitimate FBI agent. How much dirt do you think he took to the FBI with him from NFL locker rooms? The dude played in three Super Bowls, for Christ's sakes. Like, it's happening everywhere. We, I, 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 didn't, I haven't mentioned the story yet on the show, but Danny Alves, superstar defender for Barcelona. Like, football, biggest sport in the world. Danny Alves, one of the biggest stars in said sport, going to prison for six and a half years for sexual assault, rape, and molestation of an underage person. This shit didn't happen 20 years ago with these athletes, folks. That's what I'm trying to say. And, like, the cleanup with sports has taken as long and it's as messy as anything else because these communist fuckwits that want to take over the world discovered, due in large part to that 1980 miracle on ice, how much a sporting event can invigorize or invigorate a country, energize a country, and turn a country's spirits around like that. That's what that game did. And I think that was maybe one of the points the communists went, oh, shit, we've got to start infiltrating that, too. We've got to get to this shit now, too. And it's going to take equally as long to root the shit out and get rid of it. But I think 
we are seeing it in sports. Otherwise, I wouldn't be as passionate about doing a damn sports show if I thought it was a lost cause, but I don't. I sincerely think there's going to be a resurgence, and we're going to yeet this shit out of the sports atmosphere, too. And it's you guys have to remember, all right, here's where I tie it all back to sports. Donald Trump is a huge fan of sports. So if you think there weren't, if, if you think the FBI is not digging in on some of the corruption in sports, like, come on, man. Like, I just, maybe I'm eternally optimistic. I don't know, JB. Maybe I, my 40,000 foot view is, is 90,000 feet and I'm seeing shit that ain't there. I don't know. I just choose to believe that this cleanup going on right now, this eradication of this corruption, evil and communism, it's not just about politics. It has to encompass everything or else. What's the fucking point, man? Everything, everything is integrated. And I keep saying this to people and listen, we as a people are an optimistic people and they have worked really hard to rob us of our optimism. And we can never give up our optimism and forward thinking process. That's who we are. We're going to remember, but we're not going to dwell on it. We're going to think forward and keep it moving. And we're in the middle of a technological revolution, Paul that the world has never seen before. Everything is getting ready to change. Nothing can stop what is coming. You just got to understand that. Amen, my friend. And look, uh, that's, that's a good point to wrap up the show and end it, actually. I'll, I'll add on to that. By bringing saying, God Almighty with us, you know. <laughs> that's right. That's, and not their God. That they, Me and Ash played a bit on Culture of Change last night. Uh, it was a fantastic video called Skynet Rising, actually. Uh, breaking down the Terminator plot and how it relates to right now today. And there was uh, Ted Harris was in there, that fucking slimy piece atheist shit. Um, and he said, you know, if we're uh, look, if we're going to create a God, that's fine. We just have to make sure it's a God we can live with. No, I don't want to live with your God. How about I'll continue to worship Jesus Christ and live under his world as according to his teachings in that good book. Um, and anything that tries to go against that, I don't care how religious zealot I sound right here. Anything that tries to go against that will lose because God wins and nothing can stop what's coming. That's where that's at. It doesn't mean it's going to be an enjoyable ride. It's not. There's going to be some turbulence. We're, we're probably going to hit our head on the, on the luggage racks above us. We're probably going to get tossed around that sea a little bit, thrown down the aisles, have some bumps, scrapes and bruises. It's like that motivational video I played on, on here ages ago from Steve Harvey, where he's talking about, you just got to jump. Now you just got to jump. At some point, that parachute's going to open. Now, you might fall down the cliff a little bit. You're going to scrape yourself on some rocks. You might break a bone here or there and get hung up on a twig. But that parachute's going to open. It's the same thing with this, man. You guys have to have faith and just keep moving forward because the parachute's opening. Like, it's not it's not about to open. It's not going to open. The parachute is opening right now. And we've got to stay in there, man. It's going to be bumpy until November and probably for a certain period after the election as well. But we've got to stick to it, man. We've got to understand what, exactly what you said, JB. These these fools are masters at the propaganda, and they're masters at making you take a black pill. And there are plenty of people embedded within this movement. It, it, this infiltration goes both ways. So don't think that everybody in this movement is benevolent. There are people in this movement that love to sit there every day and tell you how terrible America is, tell you how hopeless everything is, tell you how... Our only means are to resort to violence and take to the streets. These are not the people you should be listening to right now because these people are more than likely probably communist infiltrators that are there for the specific purpose of beating down your hope and faith so you'll just fucking give up because there's nothing better to a communist than somebody that just gives up and won't fight. That's what they want. So when somebody's coming at you telling you there's no hope, no faith for America, that we're screwed, there's no way out of this, change a damn channel and turn them off. I'm not trying to tell you who to follow, but I'm just telling you that person has no energy that serves you. And if it doesn't serve you out the door, 
that's 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 where we're at right now. And so, JB, I'm going to leave us out with the video today. It's the most patriotic moments in American sports. I figured that'd be a nice, nice way to round out this episode, given the conversation we just had. Now, look, a couple of these involve George W. Bush. Fine. But look, set the man aside, what we know about him aside. I want you to tell me right now that when he threw that first pitch at the World Series after 9-11, it didn't give you a little bit of American Uh-oh. pride and goosebumps. And if you Uh-oh. say it didn't, you're full of shit. Okay, like you you could set these people aside sometimes because sometimes the moment gets bigger than these people. And sometimes the moment isn't exactly what they wanted. Like, I promise you, the unity that America saw after 9-11, Deep State wasn't counting on that shit after they put like when they were playing in 9-11, they were like, eh, Americans are too distracted. They'll probably be like, eh, and move on. Nope, it's not what happened at all. It kind of energized America. And there's quite a few moments in here like that, man. So, JB, turn it over to you for some closing words and we'll scoot on out of here for the day, my friend. Hey, man, it's uh, spring. I feel rejuvenated, confident, and uh, enthusiastic about the way everything is shaken down amidst the craziness. Because, my goodness, have we seen some craziness in the last week or two. But, uh, hey, man, that city on a hill, right? We we can see it. We can see it. Right, right. It's uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is not a freight train. Is not that's there's there's no ending that that there's no more cliche coming. It's just we're we're there like we're we got to keep moving forward, man. It's uh it's a beautiful thing to see as frightening as it is too, seeing so many people willing to fight and wake up, man. So you guys, like my brother JB said, nothing can stop what's coming. So you all keep moving forward. Keep keep your foot moving forward and make sure you're uh when you're moving forward, don't look at the ground. Keep your feet on the horizon. You need to know where you're going. So keep your head up. Keep your chin up. Keep moving forward. Remember that God wins. I want to thank you guys so, so much for your support and your love. You guys mean the world to me and JB. We thank you for helping this show grow. And we hope that you guys have a wonderfully blessed week. You can, of course, catch me tomorrow morning uh, for Badlands Daily at 10 o'clock and then tomorrow night for Eye of the Storm. JB, when are you on the airwaves next, my friend? Wednesday morning, bright and early at 8 a.m. Eastern. Heard that, folks. Make sure you go check out the Rattler Gator report from the one and only Rattler Gator himself. Uh, JB, as always, been a pleasure, my friend. I'll be looking forward to Friday at noon where we'll, uh, you know, might have to get into some college basketball because there was an incident, uh, the Duke-Wake Forest game the other night I'd like to talk about that we didn't get to today. Um, Basically, our best player may not play in the NCAA tournament because some dumb fucking Wake Forest fan ran him over while they were storming the court and hurt his knee. Um. We'll talk about it Friday. We'll talk about this, the, the court storming thing on Friday. I'm, I'm a little salty right now, so it's probably best to to let it go. Um, so, friends, thank you guys so very, very much. Like I said, here's a video. Top 10 most patriotic moments in American sports. Hope you guys enjoy it. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. We'll see you Friday. You friends, be blessed. Bye-bye. Sporting events are always going to be a central part of the American experience. In the fall, Americans tune in to watch their favorite sports, be it the NFL, MLB, NHL, and even the NBA. Every two years, we come together as a nation to support Team USA in the Winter or Summer Olympics. We even sometimes come together to watch the United States compete in World Cup play. It's happened. From the yellow ribbon tied around the Superdome during Super Bowl 15 to remember hostages taken in Iran, to chants of USA, USA, when a crowd in Philadelphia learned about the death of Osama bin Laden. American sports fans and players wear their American hearts on their sleeves. So let's check out the top 10 most patriotic moments in sports history. Number 10, Team USA carries the World Trade Center flag to the Olympics. 
Rarely does a flag presentation at the Olympic Games happen to a quiet crowd. But as eight members of Team USA, flanked by members of the New York Police Department and New York Fire Department, marched the flag of the host country into the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, you could hear a pin drop. The flag they carried was found in the rubble of Ground Zero and had flown atop the World Trade Center in New York when the buildings were attacked on September 11, 2001. That flag was under the debris for three days before being found and given to the National Guard. It took some time to convince the International Olympic Committee, who is responsible for keeping politics out of the games, to approve the display of the torn and tattered banner. But on opening night, the World Trade Center's old glory flew proudly once more. Number nine, Ruling Gardner defeats the undefeated. For a decade, Alexander Karelin was the world's dominant super heavyweight wrestler. By the time the 2000 Olympics rolled around, Karelin, AKA the Russian bear, AKA Alexander the Great, hadn't been defeated in a match since Russia was still called the Soviet Union. And even then, that was his only loss until he faced off with a dairy farmer from Wyoming. In six years, Karelin hadn't even given up a single point to an opponent. His American opponent, Ruling Gardner, hadn't placed higher than fifth in the world up until this point, and even lost to Karelin five to nothing before. But Karelin lost his grip and a point to Gardner in the second period. Number eight, Mary Lou Retton wins a gymnastic first. A little girl from West Virginia dealt a stunning blow to the Eastern Bloc during the Cold War when Mary Lou Retton brought home Olympic gold in 1984. Before Retton, Team USA was never able to wrest Olympic gold from the Eastern Europe in the individual all-around gymnastics event. She came into the event trailing Romania's Ekaterina Zabo, and she even had undergone a knee operation just five weeks before competing. In Retton's own words, she believes her performance showed that American-born and trained athletes can do anything, no matter what the odds are. 1999 Women's World Cup Final The 1999 Women's World Cup came down to a shootout tiebreaker against the Chinese. With the score tied 0-0 in extra time, the U.S. team would end up winning based on penalties. It wasn't so much the gameplay that mattered, it was the draw. With 90,000 spectators, it was the largest turnout for a women's sporting event ever. The lasting image of the U.S. win would be Brandi Chastain's post-penalty kick celebration of the victory, where she fell to her knees and took off her jersey, revealing the sports bra seen around the world. That image became one of Sports Illustrated's most iconic covers ever. Number 6. Joe Lewis Knocks Out a Nazi In 1938, Hitler was still touting the Germans as a master race, while German athletes competed the world over for top honors. On June 22nd, Max Schmeling met American champion, the Brown Bomber Joe Lewis. The first time the two met in 1936, Schmeling took advantage of a moment when Lewis dropped his left hand after a jab, allowing Schmeling to give Lewis his first loss in the 12th round of that fight. That would not happen again. With the world listening via radio and more than 70,000 watching in Yankee Stadium, Lewis unloaded on Schmeling, knocking him down three times in just two minutes. Schmeling was only able to throw two punches in the whole one-round match. Number five, the champ lights the Olympic torch. Lighting the Olympic flame at the end of the torch relay is an honor reserved for a legendary Olympic athlete from the host country. Does it get more legendary than the greatest Muhammad Ali? Except in 1996, the identity of the one who would light the flame was a close-kept secret. 
Even swimmer Janet Evans, who was handing the torch off, didn't know to whom she was handing it. Ali was stricken with Parkinson's disease and had long since retired by this point. When Ali emerged to take the Olympic torch and light the flame, the sound in Atlanta was less a roar of applause and more of the collective gasp of elated surprise as the once great boxer, shaking, lit the torch. Number four, Rick Monday saves the flag. Remember the MLB outfielder Rick Monday? He might be before most of our audience's time, but Monday was with the Los Angeles Dodgers 1981 World Series winning team. Before that, he was the top prospect in the 1965 Major League Baseball draft. Somewhere in between, he saved old glory from public degradation. In 1976, Monday was with the Chicago Cubs, visiting the Dodgers. With Monday in center field during the fourth inning, two protesters jumped the outfield fence and tried to burn a flag on live television. Monday, seeing what was about to transpire, ran over and snatched the lighter fluid-soaked flag. The protesters were arrested and Monday was able to keep the flag. Ever since that day, Monday used the actual flag to raise money for military families. Number three, the president's post 9-11 opening pitch. It might be hard to imagine the leader of the free world facing a new global war on terrorism, being psyched out by throwing the first pitch in Yankee Stadium. But in his own words, he absolutely was. Thousands of New Yorkers came to the stadium to watch President George W. Bush throw the pitch to open Game 3 of the 2001 World Series. It was also just weeks after 9-11. He didn't want Americans to think the president was incapable of finding the plate. But as he practiced, Yankee Derek Jeter told him that he needed to both throw from the mound and not in front as originally planned, and not bounce it. They'll boo you, he told the president. Bush, shaken but loose, walked onto the field and threw a strike to an eruption of applause. Number two, the Buckeye bullet burns Hitler. Before he ever arrived in Berlin for the 1936 Olympic Games, Jesse Owens had already set three world records and tied another. At Ohio State, he won eight individual NCAA championships, which was a record in its own right. When he arrived in Berlin, he knew Nazi Germany was using the games as a showcase for its racial policies but he was determined to compete anyway. Owens went on to win four gold medals in 1936, an unrivaled achievement until some 50 years later when Carl Lewis did the same in 1984. When Owens won gold in the long jump, the Olympic Committee told Hitler he had to greet all the winners or none at all. Hitler opted for none. As Owens won other events, Hitler would leave early. Nazi minister Albert Speer would later write that Hitler was, quote, highly annoyed by the series of triumphs by the marvelous colored American runner, Jesse Owens, end quote. Number one, the miracle on ice. Would you bet money on a bunch of college amateurs taking on the world's greatest hockey team in a competition for Olympic gold? Not many would, and not many did, as it turns out. That was the situation Team USA faced in the 1980 Winter Olympics. It was a tough time for the United States, with hostages in Iran, an energy crisis, and runaway inflation. It looked like the American dream was coming to an end. But no words echoed through the ages like Al Michaels' Do You Believe in Miracles? as Team USA topped the Soviet Union 4-3 in one of the biggest upsets in sports history. That's our list. We hope it made you as proud as it made us. Leave us a comment and tell us your favorite patriotic moments in sports history.
The poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride in cynicism. There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. There is no more unhealthy being, no man less worthy of respect, than he who either really holds or feigns to hold an attitude of sneering disbelief toward all that is great and lofty, whether in achievement or in that noble effort which, even if it fails, comes to second achievement. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. The test of a man is how much he will bear for a cause which he knows to be right. How long will he stand in the depths of despair? How much will he suffer and fight? There are many to serve when the victory is near and few are the hurts to be borne. But it calls for a leader of courage to cheer the men in a battle for all. It is the way you hold out against odds that are great that proves what your courage is worth. It is the way that you stand to the bruises of fate that shows up your stature and girth. And victory is nothing but proof of your skill, veneered with a glory that's thin. Unless it is a proof of unfaltering will and unless you have suffered to win. Friends, first off, thank you so very much for joining us. We truly and deeply appreciate your continued support and love shown to us here at Badlands Media. Don't forget to hit the thumbs up on this video and help get this show on the Rumble leaderboard. Another way you can support Badlands for free? Become a Badlander. How do you do that? Head on over to badlandsmedia.tv, click connect from the top menu, and then click be a Badlander. Once you're registered, you can download clips from your favorite Badlands shows to share on your social media accounts. You can also print out flyers and stickers that you can hand out at an event and more. Let's keep growing our community because we are the news now and we take that very seriously. Thank you again from Badlands for your support and your love. It is appreciated more than you know.